0: We're looking through the book of Philippians, and we started in uh, chapter 1, and we are now uh, left off in chapter 1, verse 14. So before we start, I'd like to open in prayer, I'd like to welcome you all, I thank you for this time together. Father, we come to you this morning and recognize that we are part of your flock, those that have called upon you, upon the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and received him as their savior. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy and salvation. And Lord, we ask that you would illuminate your word to us as we open up this passage. We pray, Father, that it would not only be a study in your word, but it would be practical and it would be uh, applicable in our lives that we would appropriate these truths by your grace and recognize that these are your very word. As you inspired your servant Paul, we look to you, Father, for the ability and the grace to be obedient to your word. We give you thanks now and ask that you'd guide us and that you'd be glorified as we study, as we examine, as we look to you to live out these truths in our lives. We just pray this in Jesus' precious name and to his glory. Amen. Okay, we uh, have to reflect a little bit as we think of this city of Philippi. I want to take us back to our introduction when we considered this city. Now, even though it was in the Roman Empire and it was part from the city of Rome, it mimicked Rome in every essential way. They spoke Latin as Rome did. They dressed as the Romans did. They lived out. They had the same currency, a coin that Rome did and were proud to be Romans. Romans even though they were in the city of Philippi. That city consisted primarily of Greeks. Although there was uh, several or numerous Jews there, there weren't very many believing Jews. Though Paul went first to the Jews and then the Gentiles to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have looked now at Paul... Opening with his prayer for these Philippian saints, his praise for how they have been living their faith in this city, thinking of his imprisonment and their concern for him. He was just rejoicing over the lives that they were living faithfully to the Lord. They continued to proclaim the gospel, which Paul addresses now, but he's also going to address the attitude which separated these believers. So as we left off in 14, I will read that verse and we'll pick it up from there. I'm reading from the New King James. I'll pick up from verse 14. It says, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident of my, by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add to my affliction, to my chains. But the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Well, as we think of Paul having uh, an effect, even while he was in prison, to bring forth the gospel, he had opportunity with the praetorian guard, and we spoke of that last week. He was chained to these guards, and they must have been uh, somewhat overwhelmed by Paul's life. He rejoiced. He sang songs and praise to the Lord. He lifted up prayer for the saints and I'm sure also for these praetorian guards. They understood that this man wasn't there because he was a criminal, a thief, or someone that did wrong. He was there because of the proclamation of Jesus Christ. They understood that And they recognized and admired the character that he displayed. Let's remember that he's in there. He's already been sentenced. He wasn't waiting for the trial. He was waiting for the verdict of this trial. He was optimistic, looking forward perhaps to being released. And so he wanted to encourage these believers As you know, he was going to send this letter back with Epaphroditus. He speaks of that later on in this epistle. And he had a great love for the saints there. Paul uh, wanted to reassure them. He was in hopes, of course, of being released. And he wanted them to be steadfast and exercise courage in their boldness with the gospel. Because of his imprisonment and because of the joy that he exhibited and the confidence that he exhibited, they became emboldened to preach the gospel. And this brought joy to Paul. <clears throat> As we know, uh, Paul, the more he suffered, the more he displayed God's character. And he, of course, pinned that I can do all things through Christ that strengthened me. He understood that strength that he got from God. In any circumstance. He also knew that he wasn't there because of any uh, magistrate. He was there by an appointment. He was there because under God's sovereignty, God wanted him there. His whole life, he says, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. So Paul understood the sovereignty of God's hand upon him, and he was going to exercise that sovereign right that God gave him to proclaim the gospel within the confines of prison. The congregation consisted, as I said, mostly converts from the Gentile world, but Paul, remember, he preached first to the Jews, and it says in Acts 28:24 that some believed, but also some disbelieved. In other words, some of the Jews were responsive to the Gospels, some were not. Some rejected it. So there probably existed from the first group of believers, uh, a fellowship between these Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. They came together for fellowship and it didn't matter the separation of their backgrounds or nationalities. That didn't mean anything because they were all one in Christ Jesus. They were united in Christ. So they would gather together and fellowship and worship together. We also read in Acts 28 that during the two years imprisonment, Paul welcomed all who came to him. And he proclaimed the gospel to all the visitors and encouraged those that were believers in the Lord. Paul's example uh, in fourteen, the second part of fourteen, it gave them courage to speak the word of God without fear. As they saw God protect him and guide him and empower him to proclaim the gospel, it gave them encouragement. Think about it. If we have by God's sovereignty a circumstance in which we didn't bring upon ourselves, then God can use us no matter what. These believers were encouraged. And so they didn't care at that point. They were being persecuted, many of them, because the Jews hated them, the unbelieving Jews. And they were the ones that mostly brought upon the believers the persecution that took place. So, Paul's circumstances are beyond our ability to fully grasp because we can't put ourselves and understand what it was like in that Roman prison. And yet, his physical comfort or his possessions or his freedom didn't matter. It didn't mean anything to Paul. He, as I said, he understood God's sovereignty, so Paul's words... spread the gospel, even through his suffering. And as believers, we can understand in our suffering that we can be used of God to bring forth truth. Now, there was a pagan philosopher back in that first century, and his name was Epictetus. And he wrote a book called Discourse. And his impression of believers, he stated this. He said this was what he saw of a Christian. I am in sore straits, O Lord, and in misfortune. No one regards me. No one gives me anything. All blame me and speak ill of me. And then this philosopher asked this question. Is this the witness that you are going to bear? And is this the way in which you are going to disgrace the summons which he gave you? In other words, referring to God giving this Christian man the summons and then he was complaining. Contrast that with Job. All that Job suffered, all that Satan went before God and asked him to take away Job's family, his wealth. And in that, Job never cursed God. And... Rather, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So in all his sufferings, he never cursed God, but rather he gave glory to God. Philippians, in these next few chapters, uh, from 15 through 18, even though they were strengthened, there was this boldness, but that was not exactly the ideal church. Sometimes we have this view of the first century church that some denominations are founded on the hopes that they can mimic or somehow uh, sensationalize what the first century church was like. They thought it was the church of perfection, but it was not. It was no different in many ways, than the contemporary church. Now, contemporary church, we've had greater opportunities to present the gospel, and yet, as we'll see here, that doesn't always go forth. Neither do Christians always become a testimony for God. Even though these believers were strengthened, they show that there was the element of jealousy amongst them. Now, there was this uh, author that wrote the book War and Peace, and he was a humanist. And he said this, thinking about human values. Sometimes we think the early, uh, excuse me, today this humanist said, excuse me, He once complained about people who were always talking about the good old days. He said they were foolish because in terms of all the important things in life, human aspirations, human feelings and failures and human nature, the good old days were no different from our own. He was a humanist talking that way. And yet Christians often reflect that way. Well, wouldn't it be nice if it was like the first century church? Yet, here we see a good example, as well as when Cornell is going through 1 Corinthians, we're seeing the sinfulness that was playing out within the Corinthian church, and we see it here at the church of Philippi. There was an exemplary church, which Paul uh, lifted up, and that was the church of Thessalonica. And they were an exemplary group. They had great love for the brethren and they had a great testimony everywhere they went. But here we're going to see that Paul was not only going to have to point out what was being done, but he still rejoiced because he knew the gospel was going forth. The uh, Corinthians is as Cornell has already pointed out, starts out in that book. It says these were sanctified in Jesus Christ. They were recipients of grace. They were enriched in every way. And the testimony of Christ is confirmed. And they do not lack any spiritual gift. That was verses 2 to 7 in 1 Corinthians. And yet, it was filled with problems. Some were... Uh, divisive, saying, I am Paul or I am Apollos, or the ones that thought themselves more spiritual said, well, I am of Christ. I only follow Christ. So there was schisms. There was all kinds of sin. In chapter 5, there was that of a, a man having fornication with his stepmother. Later on, you see in chapter 11, there was drunkenness and Gluttony when they're partaking of communion. So there was all kinds of sin. And yet Paul addresses him in that way. Well, here in Philippians, the church of Philippi, they still had problems. As we look at this, even though some of the members of the praetorian had been converted and were encouraged by the witness of Paul, He wrote wrote that some preach the gospel in uh, verse 15, even from envy and strife, and, and some from goodwill. As we look at this, what the word means is to want something or want somebody not to have something that they already own or partake of. They became envious of Paul. These, uh, this church had been established for a while in Rome. And so there were leaders in Rome that were preaching the gospel and ministering to the saints. But when Paul came there, he was, he was well known and loved by all the saints. All those that knew Paul or that were, uh, taught or received teaching through his epistles, loved him. Paul mentored them. He prayed for them. He cared for them. And he lived sacrificially to serve Christ by serving in the church. These believers loved him. And so some of these were jealous of that. Some of these leaders. And so what they saw, they wanted to somehow bring some discomfort to Paul through proclaiming the gospel. You'd say, well, how would that be? If somebody's proclaiming the gospel, how could it bring distress to Paul? They thought perhaps that because he was in prison and because he wasn't out there being able to go to every city and minister the gospel, that they would show their superiority. Remember earlier, Well, we'll get to this. But Paul was miraculously released when he was, they were trying to capture him when he was in Philippi prior. The Greek word for envy is pathanos. And that is the desire to deprive others of what is rightfully theirs or to wish they didn't have what they had to a lesser degree. From the context, it seems likely that these uh Jealous or envious individuals were jealous of the apostle. They envied him. You remember, Paul was a great intellect, although he defined himself as weak and unable to speak. But he was a brilliant author of these epistles. God had gifted this man greatly, even from prior to his conversion. He studied under Gamaliel, one of the greatest teachers of the Hebrews. So he was a Pharisee prior to his conversion. He memorized great links of texts in the Old Testament. So Paul was a, a scholar in many ways. And these individuals were jealous of that. The word strife refers to contentious spirit or hostility. Like some of Job's friends, they were envious and they wanted to bring charge against Job when he was suffering. The fact was that he was in prison and that surely meant to these scoffers that Paul lacked spiritual power to get out of prison. He no longer had what he had before. So they were criticizing him. They were jealous of him. And they're trying to discredit him. In verse 16, the former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. Well, <clears throat> thinking that Paul's imprisonment somehow would be uh, hindering his ministry was just the opposite. Since Paul knew he was there under the sovereign hand of God, he completely understood that God was going to give him opportunity. So not only was these some of these praetorian guards hearing and responding to the gospel, but these same praetorian guards were carrying it back to Caesar's household. So the gospel was spreading far beyond what he could have done if he wasn't in prison. He was having more of an effect on Caesar's household than he could have if he was not incarcerated. Yet they didn't understand that. Not only were these individuals self-seeking, but even worse, they wanted Paul to be distressed in his imprisonment. But Paul says this, the former preach Christ out of love. I mean, the latter speak the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So Paul knew that he was appointed for this purpose. He was going to defend the gospel. He was going to proclaim the gospel. As we think of this, even in his incarceration, he was defending the gospel against all those who would try to refute him. Oftentimes, we think of apologetics as a perhaps a worldly way of approaching somebody, but it's really not. This defense comes from apologio, which is the word we get apologetics from. We should be ready always to give a defense of that hope that lieth within us. So we should understand and learn and dig in the word to be able to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ And to be able to clearly articulate the gospel. If we don't, we're not fulfilling the very call as ambassadors of Christ. This is what Paul was doing. And he understood quite well that there was great opposition to the gospel. The Jews were adamantly hating Christians. All for the one, except the ones that were converted. The unconverted Jews had an adamant hate for Christians and for Christianity and for Jesus Christ. Paul did so in love. And he knew that they were doing this in love. And when he says love, he's referring to agape love. 1 Corinthians 13, love. And that this is what he was talking about. Though I speak with tongues of men and angels but have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So Paul understood the motivation of the gospel is Christ's love as we Bring forth the truth of what Christ has done for the lost. Paul very well knew that they were preaching. Some of them were preaching in love. The ones that were jealous and preaching out of strife and envy. They were still bringing forth the gospel. We'll see over in chapter 3 that Paul is going to attack the Judaizers. What he refers to as a circumcision, he calls them the dogs, and he attacks them similar to what he did in Galatians. They were not proclaiming a false gospel, these ones that were envy, had envy and strife. They, they had the orthodox gospel. Some authors and some scholars have tried to say, well, these weren't Christians that were doing this. Yes, they were. They brought forth the Orthodox Gospel, and that's why he said some of the... He's referring to under the category of brethren. He's talking about believers. He's not talking about his Hebrew brethren. He's talking about brothers in Jesus Christ. Some of them preached the Gospel out of love. Others did so thinking somehow they would bring distress upon Paul. Even though they were... Uh, bringing forth the orthodox gospel. We try to understand this and yet that's the heart of man. It hasn't changed. We as Christians can have wrong motives when we do some form of service or ministry. If we don't have and serve in love in Christ by His grace, it's nothing. It means nothing. And yet, God can still bring forth his word and it can have transforming power. The gospel. It is the power into salvation. <clears throat> Paul wanted them to have courage. He wanted them to be able to uh, exhibit boldness even in difficulty. And he didn't want them to be prone to strife or jealousy or anger or tempers, much as what they did in Second Corinthians chapter 12. And I'll just take you there because it shows the propensity that we could have if we are in sin. Paul says this in Second in Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 20. For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, and tumults. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many. Who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. So Paul here was speaking of the, to the Corinthians, saints, when he said that. D. Martin Lloyd Jones says this. So as men attack the gospel on various grounds, we should be able to meet their objections and give our reply. It means actively on our part. It means studying and familiarizing ourselves with the facts. Nowhere do I find in the New Testament a picture of the church as a body of people who solely spend their time singing and just relating their experiences and having a so-called good time spiritually. Not at all. They are called to the defense of the gospel, the attack is there and we must means a positive exposition and an explanation, a setting forth of the truth above everything else. It means that we must give the proof which we can supply by our lives in our daily living. So what Martin Lloyd Jones was uh, saying there was an admonition to the church. That we should be studying God's word, we should be familiar with God's word, and we should be able to be able to give an accurate defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not that we can't enjoy the fellowship of the saints and enjoy the sweet fellowship with song and praise, and enjoying our fellowship with the brethren, but that's not our first call. Our first call is to glorify God. And to be able to bring forth the gospel, to grow in the knowledge of Christ, and to be a vessel for him. That verse that I referenced earlier, First Peter says, Sanctify God in your heart, always being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks. For a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. That's a great uh admonition. But we start with sanctifying. And sanctify of course means to be set apart, to set apart ourselves to God. And to have our hearts ready means that we don't any carrying any unconfessed sin or allowing any sin in our lives that we won't repent of and turn from and confess to the Lord. And we also have to exhibit meekness and fear, which is humbling ourselves before the Lord, recognizing we're just vessels. It's God, the Holy Spirit, that opens hearts. It's God, the Holy Spirit, that brings salvation. We are just vessels to bring forth his word. So Paul was encouraged by these saints in Philippi who were bringing forth the gospel. Wasn't a false gospel? It was the gospel. Then he says, what then? Only in every way, verse 18, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice. Yea, and will rejoice. When he says, what then? It's a rhetorical question. And then he answers it. That in every way. That the cause of Christ is being preached. And even in pretense by these envious attackers, the gospel was still going forth. That's hard to put together and understand. And we can't know exactly what was going on there. But we do know that their attitude was one of jealousy and strife. And yet the gospel itself was being proclaimed. People were still being saved, even in the midst of that. In this, Paul greatly rejoiced. God's word is powerful, no matter what the motives of those who bring forth truth, as long as it is truth, not heresy. Truth refers not to the accuracy of what they said so much, but the integrity of their heart is what he was bringing forth. So sometimes our heart is not right, yet God can still use his word and bring forth the gospel. He wasn't approving that, by the way. He was rejoicing in the end result. And he pointed out the distinction between those preaching the gospel in love and those that were preaching out of envy and strife. And he knew. He was getting reports, even though he was in prison in Rome. He understood, and yet he understood the heart of man. He knew what he was like prior to salvation, and he knew the struggles that he had as an apostle. So he was there as a mature saint. As we think of this, what would bring forth this envy and strife? It would be a desire, a self-seeking desire to elevate ourselves. Paul's going to address that later in this epistle. He's going to instruct us to put on the mind of Christ, to think of others as more important than ourselves. He wants them to understand that we are Christ's vessels. We are to exhibit that and exhibit that in the love of Christ. That only comes from a right relationship with God. These men were preaching because they wanted to bring some kind of harm to Paul and cause him distress upon distress, it didn't. Paul only thought of the end result. He knew that in every local fellowship, there was going to be those who were loving, growing, and maturing as saints. That makes a big distinction here. The ones that were preaching the gospel in love were mature saints. They had a right relationship. They were keeping a right relationship with the Lord. Didn't mean they were sinless, but it meant that their lives were in such a way that the gospel was being claimed and proclaimed in love. Their hearts were right and they were doing so out of the love of Christ and the love for man. And they had a passion to bring forth the gospel to the lost. They imagine these Philippian saints. They were Romans, proud people. And yet, when they came to Christ, they were humbled, recognizing who they were. They had to understand their sin and their pride, and they were humbled by that. And as a result, they proclaimed Christ and the gospel with love. These others that were exhibiting this pride and doing it out of envy and strife, it's I don't understand how they could maintain their posture as a leader somehow. But these some of these, according to scholars, were leaders in the church in Philippi. So we can see from that that it is a very uh, distressing thing when we see in the body of Christ those that are so proud that they're lifting up themselves rather than Jesus Christ. It is only when we focus on the name and the person of Christ and his glory that you can bring forth the gospel with pure love. Some of them were doing that. Some of them were not. Christ was being preached. When we see that things are secure in our lives and things seem to be going well, but in spite of all that, we could have any kind of a circumstance. That would change our lives. Or turn our lives upside down. In an instant. Paul understood that. His circumstances. Didn't disconnect. His ability. To draw upon God's grace. And his love. To carry on. The ministry of Christ Jesus. Envy and strife. Caused trouble in Paul's day. And it still does today. Many. Uh, churches have schisms, and they talking about the universal church. There's all kinds of schisms and problems where people are striving and having contention. And yet, even though we have greater opportunity today than ever before, the one commentator says the church has been more irrelevant and more divided than all of church history. Sad commentary. But it relates all the way back as we look at the first century church. It wasn't just now that there was these divisions and irrelevance and the divisions that they see in church. It was all the way back to the first century. So next, next time we carry on with this passage, we're going to be looking at how Paul wants us to consider ourselves consider others as better than ourselves and we're to possess the mind of Christ. As we think of these things, we see uh, and we're blessed to be able to see uh, a close-knit body. And I, I say this because of my love for this body. And I know the love that Jim has and the love that Dave has and the love that Cornell has. It isn't always that way in local churches. And I say that out of sadness, but it's also based on biblical history and biblical truth. We are blessed, and it's only when you're centered on the word of God and you're focused on the word of God and not just learning the word of God, taking in some academic understanding, but it's in the practice of God's word by his grace that we can carry out the ministry that God's called us to. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign. And regardless of our circumstances, you have placed us in this time, in this century, for your sovereign purposes. We know that uh, everything that happens is under your sovereign providence. So we call upon you, Lord, to enable us to be responsive to your word, to be obedient to your word, And we're not, when we're not, Father, we pray that we would be convicted by your Spirit through your Word to bring us to repentance and restoration with you. I thank you, Father, that you proclaim all the truths of what you are, who you are, and what you have done. And to be able to give us examples from your Word of where we can fail and where we can have spiritual direction through Christ Jesus. We ask that you be glorified now as we continue to worship you as the word is preached and proclaimed. And as we sing song and praises to you, Father, we pray that all we do would bring glory to your name. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.